Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast, and I am your host, Eric Carrier. I am here as always with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jess, anything you want to talk about today before we get into the show? You know what? Our lives are pretty boring, but it seems like the world's falling apart. What do you think? Yeah, definitely our thoughts and our prayers are going out to those of you who may be in Ukraine. We hate what is going on to you guys there, and we support your efforts to protect your families and your freedom. I'll tell you what. If any of our listeners want to leave us a tip, which we already use as a donation, we will, through the month of March, match that donation up to $50 total and send that to an organization that is supporting Ukraine and their efforts. We would invite you all to participate in this effort. Jess, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Well, today we have an amazing story. We're going to be talking about the Dodlison messages. I'm not sure if this is a ghost story, a time slip story, or a time travel story, but in short, it's about a guy living in the United Kingdom in 1984 who borrows a word processor from the school he's working at and starts to receive messages from a person claiming to be from the early 1500s. And if that's not strange enough for you, just wait until he starts receiving messages possibly from the future from another entity called 2109. Yeah, I am not sure how this skipped our radar. We have a pretty good paranormal radar, I think. But before our son came across this on YouTube about a month ago, I had never heard this story before. Jess, had you heard it before? No, I'd never heard anything like this. So I guess that we're hoping that you have not heard of this either, and you're going to go into this with the same excitement that we had. But before we can do that, we do have to take a minute and do some self-promotion. Don't worry, we'll keep it short. So get that finger off that skip button. (laughs) Basically, the spiel is this. Thanks for listening. Please share the show. Check out our website if you're interested in merch or leaving a tip. Leave a review and subscribe to our social media channels. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok. So check them out, come hang out, and let's get to know each other. Yeah, the TikTok channel is on fire. So if you're interested in short videos of some of our favorite topics and stories from our episodes, check it out. Jess, is there anything else? Nope. Okay, let's get started with today's show. Jess, if you could go back to your 1984 self and explain and or show yourself some of today's technology, particularly related around computers and electronics, how do you think that you would have responded? 
I don't think I would have believed you. I think I would have been so shocked. It would have seemed like something from Star Trek. I would have not thought it was real, but impossible. Jessica, do you recall if your family had a computer at all in the 80s? Yes. In the late 80s, my dad had a computer from work that he brought home. And it was completely different than anything we have now. It was pretty much a word processor and something you could play solitaire on. Well, that's kind of what happened to Ken Webster as well, who checked out a computer from the pool of computers that they had at a school that he was working with in Wales, and all of a sudden started receiving some strange messages. Yeah, that would have been very strange, especially considering that in 1984, it was pre-internet. Today, we receive messages all the time on all of our devices, but back then, without the internet and without modems, it would have been not only unusual, but pretty much impossible. So Ken was an economics teacher from the village of Dodliston, and Dodliston is a small but quaint village. It's got about 700 residents, and it resides right on the border between the United Kingdom and Wales. Ken lived on the United Kingdom side and worked on the Wales side. Sometime in the autumn of 1984, Ken moved into and started renovating a small cottage that had been built back in the 18th century. This cottage was known as Meadow Cottage. Webster moved into this property and started renovating it with his 19-year-old girlfriend, whose name was Debbie, and a long-term house guest, whose name was Nicola Bagley. The cottage was fairly small, so the three of them often went into town, and they often took long drives just to kind of get away and to have some extra space. But all in all, Ken was a average guy. He had a job, he had a girlfriend, he had friends, and he had hobbies. Yeah, he seemed like a pretty normal guy. His hobbies included renovation and music production. Their house guest, Nicola, she was actually a writer, and she was trying to get her equity card. And I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up, and it's proof of membership in an actor's equity association. So for us in America, that would be like being part of the Screen Actors Guild or the Screen Writers Guild, a necessary endorsement she needed to be able to work in the industry. To do this, she was writing acting scripts, and she needed a, some kind of a word processor, and that's where Ken came in. He borrowed one from his school, and the particular processor that he borrowed was called a BBC Micro Model B microprocessor. Now, I'm not familiar with that particular computer processor, Eric, are you? Well, computer technology at this time was changing very quickly, so no, I'm not familiar with this particular model, but it sounds a lot like a computer my dad brought home from work in the mid-80s. Now, my dad worked for IBM uh, throughout the uh, 80s and early 90s, and he brought home this computer one day that was called the IBM PC Portable. Now, you think portable computer now, and you think, you know, smartphone, or you think laptop, but this thing was the size of a suitcase, and it had a drop-down keyboard and I believe like a six-inch screen attached to it. And everything on this computer operated via DOS and these five-and-a-half-inch floppy disks. And what could you do on that computer? Well, compared to the computer that I'm working on right now, or we're working on right now, that's running a word processor and also an audio interface and an audio recording program, all at the exact same time, practically nothing. The computer that my dad brought home was able to do some basic word processing, 
they were able to run a program called Print Shop, which did some basic printing and card making. And we also had a pool game that uh, I would play occasionally. But none of these things could be done in a multitasking fashion. They all had to be done individually and one at a time. And the programs had to be on these five and a half inch floppy disks. It did not run the internet. It did not hook up to a modem. None of these things even remotely existed at the time that this computer came out. Now, it sounds like the BBC Micro Model B was very similar to this. It was basically nothing more than a fancy typewriter, allowing for some simple word processing. This was also pre-internet. It was also pre-modem. And it was considered to be pretty high-tech with its blazing fast 2 megahertz processor. It could also only do one task at a time and required the 5.5 inch floppy disks. The word processing system that was on it was called Edward, E-D-W-O-R-D, and although very rudimentary, it allowed Nicola to do exactly what she needed to do. Oh, and it was 64 bits, so very similar to like the Commodore 64. Now these dinosaur computers may have seemed really strange today, old-fashioned and maybe even useless, but back then when we had typewriters, not having to type things out and go back and fix the errors that we made would have been amazing. It was amazing. I remember feeling so wonderful to be able to type out a paper, look it over, fix it on the screen, and then print it out. That's something that had never been done before. Yeah, the idea of being able to misspell or mistype a word and then automatically click, 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 go back and fix it was pretty amazing. Or change the font, change the indentions, change anything you want before printing it out. Yeah, we definitely have it made today with as far as ease of all this stuff, but this was very cutting edge for their time. Before Ken brought this computer home, things were already getting pretty strange at the cottage. He had been doing renovations, and that seemed to stir up some poltergeist activity. Some of the things that he reported happening were things like furniture getting moved around and piled in a corner. Sometimes he found items stacked by themselves. And one of the things I found really weird were these six-toed footprints on the walls that seemed to appear, disappear, and then reappear, almost like someone walking along the wall. Yeah, I think there were even reports, Jess, that uh, they had painted over these footprints only to have them reappear in other locations as well. And it's so weird, especially when you think about six toes. How would that look? That would be strange. Yeah, that would be strange. There were also reports of chalk marks and messages that would appear on the floor. I've seen some pictures of these, and it almost looks like they're written in hieroglyphs or some weird language, as well as sudden drops in temperature. This is all very classic poltergeist-type activity that was likely stirred up as a result of the renovations. Yeah, Ken noted that this all seemed to get stirred up when they started working on this brick piler that was in the kitchen and part of the original building structure. Some of the other reports that each of the residents made were the feeling of strange presences being around, disembodied footsteps, hair pulling, and air currents throughout the house that were even strong enough to pick up and lift a newspaper into the air. Now, while all these things were strange, They weren't nearly as strange as what happens next. So because these computers were part of a communal pool, Ken was only able to pick one up or check one out after work or on the weekends. 
So this next part starts after Ken checked out one of these computers and brought it home for the weekend. Like we explained before, because of the small house and all the renovations going on, the residents had gone out for the evening. When they came home, they noticed a strange green light emanating from the window of their cottage. It took a few minutes for Ken to realize what this light was. And what he realized was it was coming from the computer that he had left on before they went out to the pub that evening. As he walked up to the computer with the intention of turning it off, he noticed a strange file on the screen that was labeled KDN, the first initials of everyone living in the cottage. Ken opened the file and found the following message. Ken, Debbie, Nick. True are the nightmares of a person that fears, safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. Now, in our day and time, a time of instant messaging, seeing words on a screen that you didn't type is not strange. But in 1984, this was a totally different situation. Remember we said that this was pre-internet, it was pre-modem, and it was pre-Wi-Fi. So in order to even leave a message, the person would have to know how to go through several steps. One, they would have to know how to turn on and boot the computer. Two, they would have to know how to run the processing hardware, which required typing in the word Edward. And three, they would have to know how to use the Edward processing program to compile a message. And this required the user to select a prompt, either create, revise, view, format, or index from a list. And quite frankly, because this was new technology, not many people knew how to do this at this time. Home PCs were not common at this time. They were starting to come out on the market, but the price was so high that not many people could afford them, which was why Ken was checking one out from his school as opposed to actually having his own computer. Now keep in mind that hacking really wasn't a thing back then. We didn't have internet, we didn't have modems, we didn't have Wi-Fi, so there really wasn't an opportunity to hack into a computer remotely. So if this were a hoax or a joke, someone would have to be in their home, physically sitting in front of the exact computer, know how to use this particular computer, and know how to boot and run the Edward processor. So this is a lot more complicated than just hacking a computer. At first, Ken thought this was just a joke, maybe perpetrated by his friend John, who was a friend and fellow musician who stopped by occasionally to record guitar tracks with him. With the assumption that this was a joke, Ken thought nothing of this and returned the computer to the school, just like usual. Ken continued to check out the computer from time to time, and nothing further happened until a couple months later, when the three residents came home from a drive one evening to find the computer on again, and another strange file on the computer named REATE, which seemed to be a reiteration of the list prompt create on the Edward processor. This message was again written in an old English format and said this. I write on behalf of many. What strange words thou speak, although 
I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes, methinks, alterations are somewhat baffled, for they break many asleeps in my bed. Thou art a goodly man, who hath fanciful woman who dwell in mine home. I hath no want to affray, but only sith mine half-witted antic has ripped to twain mine bound, hath I been reft the night. I hath seen many alterations, lastly charge-house and thy home. Tis a fitting place, with lights which devil maketh, and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. T'was a great crime to ascribe mine house. L.W. This message was signed L.W. Ken started to get a little concerned at this point and brought the problem up with his colleagues at work. Most of them dismissed it as a prank or lapped it off, but Peter Trinder, a teacher of medieval literature, found it very intriguing, especially the language structure, which Peter affirmed was, in fact, Old English. Peter asked Ken to bring any other messages that he got to him for analysis, and Ken agreed. After studying this message and the words for a while, Peter and Ken attempted to interpret its meaning, and they felt that it meant that the house renovations were keeping the writer up at night, and that he was intrigued by the way that they spoke, the decorations they were putting in the house, and the electric, quote, devil lights. And for some reason, he also seemed to think that they had stolen his house. Ken had been in contact with another friend that he had in the village whose name was John Cummings, and John suggested that they respond and try asking the sender some questions, which Ken did, and this was Ken's message. In the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, Dear LW, thank you for your message. We are sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Did you live in a house on this land about 1620? Do you want us to tell you more about our time? Why write a poem? Who is Edward Grey? Is he related to the Egerton family? Do you have a family? Is the King James or Charles Stuart? What is the charge house? Was this village called Doddleston in your life? And how many families lived here? Thank you very much for your messages. Thank you for not making us afraid. Ken, Debbie and John. Ken then retreated to the local pub hoping for a reply, which he got. "'Twas an honest farm of oak and stone. It is helpful that you should tell me about thy time. Dost thou have horse? Edmund Gray, brother of John Gray, lives at Kinnerton Hall. The king, of course, is Henry VIII, who is six and forty. I nay woot of King James. My charge house is a place of law. L.W., 28 March, Anno, 1521. Ken was really confused. Where were these messages coming from? And how were they getting to his computer in 1984? So was he talking to someone 400 years in the past who lived on the property in 1521? He had lots of questions, like who was L.W.? And if he was from 1521, why did his replies have so many inconsistencies? For instance... L.W. claimed that he was writing from the year 1521 and that King Henry VIII is 46 years old. Now, according to history, we know that King Henry VIII was actually 30 in 1521. Ken went ahead and passed the messages on to Peter, who did some more research. According to Peter's research, Kennington Hall 
wasn't built until the 17th century, and Edmund Gray turned up no records. Now, one thing you don't see, because you don't have the messages in front of you, but the messages had strange brackets and question marks in places that we wouldn't use them today. Also, what seemed weird was that the dialect was different, a little bit out of period, as much as 200 years from when L.W. claimed to be writing. Despite these inconsistencies and questions, Ken still wanted to continue these conversations and continued to check the computer out from school. The conversations did continue, and the messages kept arriving. The writer eventually signed off with the name Lucas. Lucas expanded this in subsequent messages to Lucas Wainman. Ken and Lucas began to develop a type of friendship, and they continued correspondence. Lucas seemed to be just as confused as Ken and wanted to know what was going on, and he also wanted to know what Ken, Debbie, and Peter were doing in his house. Apparently, at times, Lucas could actually see the modern residents of Meadow Cottage and could see the renovations that Ken had been doing. He was also able to see some of their modern-day electronics, such as the things that he called the devil lights. At first, it seems that Lucas believed that Ken and Nicola and Debbie were all demons or ghosts that were brought to him by the devil lights. Throughout their messages... Ken also discovered that Lucas was experiencing the same poltergeist activity that the modern-day residents were facing. So it's kind of interesting that while the 1984 residents feel that they're kind of dealing with a ghost, Lucas, in 1521, also believes that he's communicating with either demons or ghosts who had intruded in his own home. I knowest not where thou come, or whither will ye go. Nor do I have accounting for why ye are best in mine home, but thou art a goodly visitor, and ye may abide as long as ye like. So this is starting to get kind of weird, right, Jess? Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because you think about it, you think about two different timelines, and two different timelines communicating, and each one overlapping somehow and thinking that the other is of a paranormal origin while they themselves are not. So I think that is why most people consider this to be a time slip story, where these people are slipping in and out of time in a way in which they're able to communicate and leave messages back and forth to each other. It's definitely not what one would consider to be a classic haunting, that's for sure. Yes, you're able to communicate, but you're able to communicate in real time without the use of, I guess, a medium. The computer would be considered the medium. Now, Ken and Peter had a name to go along with the mysterious messages and could research this person through available historical records. Unfortunately, they were met with nothing but dead ends. The messages, though interesting, didn't always match history, and the residents of Meadow Cottage had their doubts about their authenticity. At one point, Ken, who had spoken to Lucas about cars and modern inventions, decided to do an experiment, and left a newspaper clipping of a Jaguar next to the computer after posting a message. Lucas then replied this, My goodly friend, I have fond thy cart for train, but tis a crude thing, for without my horse it shall not gone far. What is interesting was that the photo was still on the computer when Ken returned, but he found the edges charred and burnt. Lucas was curious about the paper. More importantly, they were given another clue. 
Lucas said that he studied at Jesus College in Oxford. Ken and Peter jumped on this clue because it was something that could be researched. But the problem was, it only led to further inconsistencies. When they discovered that the college Lucas claimed to have attended wasn't even built in his time. Despite this, Ken and Peter still decided to maintain their correspondence, but not let Lucas know about the inconsistencies. In the next message, Lucas seemed to be angry with Ken. My friend, pray what a strange demon are you? I am so confused. You are goodly, I feel, but your lies frighten me much. You said you were alive, but this is not so. I have no wish to accuse you, but you said also that you are an educated man and that you know of my friend Erasmus, but you do not mention my misspelled words. If you were alive, you would say you know not of Jesus' college. It is not I that makes you afraid. It is you that makes me afraid. Ken then realized that Lucas had been testing him just as he had been testing Lucas. Lucas had been intentionally leading them astray by inserting obvious errors to see if they would catch them. Ken then replied back and confessed that they too had been testing Lucas. Lucas then replied back with real answers to previously inconsistent questions. Lucas admitted to be living under King Henry VIII, but during his marriage to Catherine Parr, and also claimed to have studied at Brasnose College in Oxford, not Jesus College. This new information corrected most of the inconsistencies in the original timeline. As time continued, it wasn't just the messages that got strange, but Debbie started having these wild dreams where she would travel back in time to meet Lucas. Now, this seems kind of normal, right? We tend to dream about things that happen in our lives, so some of this stuff was happening, and so she, it's natural that she would have dreams about it. There's nothing normal about any of this, Jess. <laughs> I don't know, if I had some dead person or person from the past speaking to me through computers, I might have weird dreams. We did an entire episode on your weird dreams, so we know you have weird dreams regardless of what's going on. Yes, so to me this does not seem strange that she had these dreams. What does seem strange is that she and Lucas almost had a physical connection at times. Debbie actually started to worry that she might be subconsciously making up Lucas's character and started to be concerned that she was the one actually writing the messages without knowing it. Now, what do you think about this theory, Eric? Well, I think that, at least in my mind, multiple personality disorder makes more sense than time travel or time loops or time slips, but these types of things were happening whether or not Debbie was actually in the home or not, and so I think it's unlikely that she was the cause. I agree. Also something interesting to note was at this time, the poltergeist activity started to increase and target Debbie. Ooh, Jess, did you just hear that paranormal activity? (laughs) Yeah, apparently our dog is paranormal. She wants us to let her out of the room. Folks, if you haven't met her yet, that's our great Dane Rio. (laughs) She's very vocal. All right, back to Debbie. Yeah, a lot of this paranormal or poltergeist activity included physical attacks on her, which included things like pulling her hair. So it's understandable that she was getting really uncomfortable with the situation. Yeah, I actually read in the research of this that they had actually purchased another small apartment 
so that Debbie could actually get some rest and not be around this situation constantly. That sounds like a good idea. Jess, you're not getting your own apartment. I repeat, that sounds like a good idea. And I repeat, you're not getting your own apartment. (laughs) (laughs) So Peter, the research guy, is out doing his best to try to track down some of this information and to verify some of the accounts of Lucas. This is not an easy task for him because this is requiring him to physically go to different places like Jesus College and search through records. All of this stuff is in databases now, but at this time, he had to physically go and do this research himself. Ken was helping out with this as he could, but Peter was doing the majority of this. So now that they had the college, Jesus College, and now that they had the name Lucas Wayneman, Peter took a trip to Jesus College and attempted to look up that name in their records. This was again a bust, but they at least had some hope because their records, particularly for that time period, were incomplete. All right, folks, this seems like a good place to take a break. Stick around after the break, and we'll talk about 2109 and how they became part of this story. This is Jerry from the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast. You just heard the intro to our new video series on YouTube, Hillbilly Dead Time Stories. I hope you'll check it out. If you're not really a video person, check out the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast, where my wife Tracy and myself will give you a new story of the unexplained every week. You can check out the audio version of Hillbilly Dead Time Stories as a bonus episode every Wednesday. All right, folks, we are back from the break. Jess, let's go ahead and continue. All right, if our story isn't weird enough already, things kind of take a different turn, a turn towards the future. In one of the messages, Ken mentioned that he was from 1985. This was strange for Lucas because apparently he thought that they were from the year 2109 because of who had brought him the Leem's Boist or the Box of Lights, which Ken discovered was the instrument that Lucas was using to communicate with him. Here's another message from Lucas. Yo said your time be 1985. Me thought yo were also from 2109, like your friend whom did bring Leem's voice. Pray. Lucas claimed that the bringer of the box of lights was a person named One, who was a green-colored time traveler. So what did this new information mean? Did this mean that a time traveler from the year 2109 gave a box of lights to a man from the 1520s who then contacted someone from the 1980s? Curious about this new development, and wondering if 2109 would also hear his messages, Ken left a message on his computer simply saying, Calling 2109. Amazingly, someone calling themselves 2109 then started communicating with Ken through the computer. Here is 2109's first message. Ken, Deb, Peter. We are sorry that we can only give you two choices. One, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way 
that you may have instant understanding, but cause what should not be to happen, or two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we're all part of the same God, whatever he, it, is. Things were already complicated and strange, but did Ken just open dialogue and have a conversation with someone from the future? The next message that came was a bit of a surprise. Lucas had apparently been talking with one of his friends about his correspondence with Ken and Debbie and ended up in jail. Yeah, apparently in the 1500s, communicating with people from other time periods was frowned upon. Yeah, that makes sense. He was arrested for witchcraft. John, the sheriff who arrested him, then started sending messages. The 1984 group was really worried about Lucas and decided to do something about it. They hatched a plan to pressure the sheriff into releasing Lucas. Ken sent the sheriff this message. Lucas is a good man and should not die. We are not devils, but we have power. Lucas must not die, but must be set free to return to his house, and then we will speak with you as friends. We too are fearful for your soul if Lucas does die at your hand. Luckily for Lucas, the message seemed to work, and the sheriff released him immediately. Lucas, however, came home to a surprise. Apparently, during his imprisonment, his property had been sold, and the buyer had no intentions of giving it back once Lucas was released. Lucas was informed that he was expected to be off the property in November or be evicted. During this time, poltergeist activity was again ramping up, and Debbie came home one day to find all the furniture and appliances in one corner of the house. Ken decided to ask Lucas about it. The small platters and knickknacks move without your touch. Lucas wrote back that they did, and it wasn't him that was tormenting Ken and Debbie. At first, Ken and Debbie blamed Lucas for the activity, but as it turns out, Lucas was blaming them. They discussed the matter further and decided that the activity must be coming from 2109. Why not? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that if Ken and Debbie aren't causing it, and Lucas isn't causing it, and it's being caused, that it could potentially be coming from 2109. Yeah, they both didn't seem to trust or like 2109. Yeah, 2109's messages seem to be very cryptic, as well as also sometimes very almost threatening. Kind of condescending, too. Kind of like, we know more than you, and we can't communicate with you because you're not smart enough, or something like that. Exactly. Because of this, they decided to come up with a way to communicate without 2109. So Ken tried laying out pieces of paper and pens. He got this idea from what happened with the photo earlier, so he thought that Lucas might be able to respond to him this way, and it worked. Lucas was able to write on paper, and without the fear of 2109, Lucas gave Ken his real first name, which was Thomas. He was still cryptic about his last name, but did leave some clues in this message. You have my name in your book. It is also the place for Peter's house. Peter lived in the nearby village of Harden. That's spelled H-A-W-A-R-D-E-N. In process, they learned that Lucas was using a pseudonym. His real name wasn't Lucas Wayman, but Thomas Harden. 
either spelt H-A-R-D-E-N or H-A-W-A-R-D-E-N. Both words are said and pronounced the same. Armed with this new information, Peter went directly to Brasnose College and looked up the name, finding that Thomas was a former dean of the chapel, but was expelled from the school in 1538 for refusing to expunge the name of the Pope from the book in the chapel, as was required by law after Henry VIII broke with the Roman Catholic Church. This is when 2109 enters back into the picture, apparently upset that Ken and Lucas had been having conversations behind their backs, and potentially conspiring against them. They left this message. Ken dead Peter. We have reason to believe you have Lucas Wayman's true name. If this is correct, you must say so, so that we may rectify the problem immediately, before it is accepted. 2109 seems to allude here that they are the big boss, and they are the ones in charge of all the communication, and this wouldn't have happened at all if they hadn't allowed it. And that they may have concocted this whole thing as some kind of elaborate experiment. At this point, 2109's messages become increasingly antagonistic, and despite their warnings, Ken and Lucas continued to have private conversations via paper and pen. It was also becoming quite clear during this time that 2109 was somehow censoring their earlier messages. As this became clearer, Ken and Lucas hatched a plan to re-ask all of their earlier questions and re-answer them again through the paper and pen format. In doing this, it became very clear that 2109 had been censoring their earlier messages, and had even faked a few of the earlier messages entirely. Ken asked 2109 about this, and got the following reply. It is better to have no knowledge at all than to have a distorted view of the truth because of your lack of understanding. We, 2109, are not without compassion, but if you continue to disrupt our experiments then it is likely you will find your destiny. We shall, however, allow one more communication with you so that you may ask your profound questions. We shall answer as you wish, if in terms of physics then it shall be so, but remember that our limits are set by your own abilities and not ours. There is no one after the man you call Lucas. The chance factor will not reoccur again in a time span your kind can relate to. Fearing that their conversations would come to an end with Lucas's eviction, Ken asked him about how he obtained the box of lights. Lucas explained that one night a strange green light started to emit from his fireplace and a man stepped out of it. The man told Lucas not to fear and to keep his faith and be strong. When the man left, Lucas found the device. It appears that Lucas's machine was different from the one that Ken had. In Lucas's case, all he had to do was speak to the machine and words would appear, more like a dictaphone. The machine then transformed his words into the message. This was also how the sheriff was able to use the machine to send the messages. The last message that Lucas or Thomas gives to Ken claims that he was being forced to leave his home because the people of Doddleston were weary of him despised him, and were probably going to burn down his barn. He committed, however, to making sure that his story was written down in a book. Here's Thomas's last message. My true fellows and sweet maid, Grosner has said that Thomas must go, 
I know it's for the best, because the people of Doddleston are very wary of me. Grosner says that they will burn my old farm down, and that except for him, all the villagers despise me. At least that is his view. It is good to know that all will change, and there are true men to follow like Ken and Peter, though 400 years is a long time, and there is much to happen to mankind. It is sad that men must learn righteousness from their ugly ways, believing that they have to look for truth in ruthlessness, and never follow a path that is for truth. I pray for my fellows at night that they are never imprisoned because of their love for their brother Thomas. Are we not true men? I say, Woe to all you men who are not true, for you are marked by God. He will not have your company, but you will walk with the beasts of Tartarus forevermore. Yes, you that have no worth in this life. I know that I mustn't sorrow, for I cannot put these feelings to paper, but you must know that I weep and am emotional. I find it hard to write. Perhaps you will come to Oxford. Now I think there is no danger for me there, for I hear the king is very sick and all is quiet in the church. I shall go by boat from Chester to Bristol. There I will buy a horse, for mine will not go on a boat. It is as scared of water as it is scared of fires. I also weep for him. I shall try to make my stay at Bracenose, though I know I was expelled many years ago. I will write my book about my brothers and maid, and of the end of Lucas and the little puppy, of our love for one another. One day you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat by the river in Oxford, where we shall read each other's books and laugh, and we shall speak of truth and good men, watching Oxford change together forevermore. In your time, my book is old, but I shall not go to my God until it is written, then we will all be truly embraced. My love to you all, I shall await you in Oxford. Thomas Hawarden. Cryptically, this was followed by a message from 2109, who writes and says that Thomas did indeed write this book in Latin and placed it in a secure place. They also said that this would be their last message until another person comes. What do you think that means? I honestly have no idea, but uh, I suspect it means that at some future point they will run this experiment again, or that there's someone else that may be coming forward to speak with Ken. It's interesting if you think about it, because if they're going to run this experiment again, they can go anywhere on the timeline. They can go back to any period or forward to any period in time. So they're probably looking for someone who might be a little bit more pliable than Ken and Lucas. So if that person happens to be you, if you're receiving cryptic messages through your computer, if you're talking to someone from 1520, if you're talking to someone from 2109, we want to hear about that. Yes, please do tell. Here is 2109's last message to Ken. There is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book, and he soon died shortly after. He placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, but he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, He writes this in the hope that my friends will one day find this book. Then may our lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need for you to write back, as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation. 2109. So we obviously don't have the book from Lucas, because no book was ever found. But Ken went ahead and wrote his own book of the experiences that he had, and he called it The Vertical Plane. The name is in reference to 2109's description of time, which they said exists on a vertical plane. 
I'm just going to have to take their word for that. I have no knowledge of that at all. It kind of makes sense, though. If time is on a vertical plane, then you can go back and forth in time like you would a number plot graph. But doesn't grafting also include or need a horizontal plane? Not if you're just looking for one point along the line. You're not going horizontally, you're just going vertically up or down. I guess that's true. All right, so if you have a copy of Ken's book, The Vertical Plane, and it's an original copy, you have in your hands a rare piece of history, and it is probably worth several hundred to a thousand dollars. So hold on to that. It's probably only going to get more valuable over time. There is a reprint that uh, is available on Amazon, which is much cheaper. But all in all, the reviews of Ken's book are pretty (laughs) non-complimentary. Most people feel that it is very poorly written. But that doesn't change the fact that original copies are still worth a lot of money. As with any good story, this has also made its appearance on television. The BBC picked up the story in 1996 in an episode of the program called Out of This World. This episode is available on YouTube if you want to check it out. During this episode, the show interviewed Dr. Laura Wright, an English professor at Cambridge University, and here's what she had to say. Looking at the verb structure, there are things which Lucas says that would not have been said in 1546. It's true that individuals can make up individual words, but we don't make up our verbs. It's possible, or it was possible in England in 1546 to say, I do, thou dost, he, she, or it doth, he, she, or it does. But it wasn't possible to say, I doth, or he, she, or it dost. Now, all the way through um, Lucas's messages, he mixes and messes up these suffixes with the wrong subject. Uh, If it's meant to look like early modern English writing, it doesn't even look close. This was obviously pretty damaging, and when confronted about this, Ken simply said there wasn't an academic in the land who would say this is real, not if they wanted to keep their position. I think that's a reasonable response. Yeah, it is not at a academic's best interest to quantify in any way that this is real. Yeah. The show also took a 500-word sample of each of Ken's and Lucas's writing and had them analyzed for sentence structure. This analysis showed that Ken had used an adjective before a noun in his writing sample 26.6% of the time, and Lucas used an adjective before a noun 26% of the time. They concluded that this suggests that Ken not only wrote his messages, but also Lucas's messages. When they compared this with other writers common to 1986, they found that they used adjectives before nouns 32 to 35% of the time. I don't think this proves that it was faked. Here's how Ken defended himself. He said that 500 words of the 150 messages he has is a very small sample size. Peter defended Ken by saying, It was very real, the type of thing you could not doubt. But we were aware the entire time that this could possibly be a hoax. But if it was a hoax, by golly, it was a brilliant one. Ken goes on to state that there is one sure way to know that this is not a hoax, and that is to find the book written by Thomas Harden, which of course has not happened to date, though Ken and Debbie are still on the trail. Okay, even if they found a book, how many people would be trying to disprove that it was authentic? 
even if it was. So it's not really a sure way to prove it nowadays with the technology we have and with all of the abilities to hoax things. This is a very minor footnote in history. So someone taking the time to create an entire book and try to make it look like a complete fake seems like overkill to me. There would be no financial reward for doing this at all because this is not an important aspect of history at all. Yeah, that makes sense. So despite the possibility that this could have been a hoax, Ken and Debbie still put themselves out there and even contacted the Society for Psychical Research, a paranormal investigation agency in the United Kingdom. It seems that if they were in on the hoax, they wouldn't want people snooping around in their business and trying to figure out what was really going on. Yes, why look for verification and validation if it's all a hoax and you're just trying to trick people? So according to Ken and Debbie, the Society for Psychical Research came to Meadow Cottage three times to investigate the home and their claims. Now, this wasn't very productive, as each time they came to the home, no evidence of spirit activity was present, and no messages appeared during their time there or in their presence. They did, however, devise a plan to send 2109 10 questions on the computer to see if they would answer any of them. So they sent Ken and Debbie out, and then they sat down at the computer, and they wrote these 10 questions. They left them on the screen for 30 minutes, and then they turned the computer off and back on again to erase the messages from the computer's memory. Their hope was that if 2109 answered any of these questions correctly, then Ken and Debbie at least could be ruled out as hoaxers. A few days later, this message appeared. David, John. David, you interfere with communication. Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear. From here, we suggest you try someone else to sit with Debbie. Yes, we are what you would call a tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given choice, or you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that this is not proved. We will give you a plotting of a star next time. We move at a speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed of a neat energy that you will not have heard of. 2109. In reply to this message, one of the researchers said, 2109 had not answered the questions but it seemed they had picked up all the questions left for them in the same order. Because of this, SPR concluded that Ken, Debbie, and Peter could therefore be excluded as hoaxers as they had not been around when the questions were written. Ultimately, SPR stopped investigating and they concluded or speculated that the messages were probably some form of electronic bugging or some other form of third-party electronic hoaxing the SBR attempted to look into several possibilities of bugging and remote computer access, but they didn't find any evidence that backed up this theory. After the SPR stopped investigating, Ken, Debbie, and Peter decided to reach out to the local papers. The Chester Observer covered the story in December 1985, as well as the Mail. Both took a rather neutral approach to this, with the Mail publishing the story underneath an ad for Boots for Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Rio would appreciate that. The mail, however, did track down the SPR, 
who fairly blatantly said they felt the whole thing was a hoax perpetrated by a third-party hacker. When Ken reached out to the SPR for their records of the case, he was told that none existed, as both men who had investigated their case had left the organization taking the records with them. I don't know if that is suspicious or if that is just inconvenient. While the Dodlison messages are unique, the use of technology to contact spirits is not unusual. Basically, since the dawn of modern technology, people have been using technology as an electronic means to tap into the spirit world. For example, modern-day ghost hunters use lots of electronic equipment to attempt to contact the dead. Yeah, this includes recording equipment, which they use to collect EVPs, which is electronic voice phenomena. And they also use something called spirit boxes, which are used in an effort to have real-time communication with spirits. Basically, this is all based on the theory that spirits can use electronic devices to communicate with us through what is called instrumental transcommunication, or ITC. Now, Jess, this reminds me of two of our own personal stories that we've shared on the show. One of those is the Elmo phone, Mm -hmm. and the other is the computer that was turned on late one night and uh, made our room go real bright. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I can't say for certain that this was spirit communication, but I can say that weird things were going on at that time. Yes. It was right after we'd been to the Willard Library and possibly took home a hitchhiking ghost. Ultimately, there are many reports of spirits reaching out and leaving messages on phones, on answering machines, through text and emails in an effort to send messages to their loved ones. It's almost like electronics are easier mediums than people. Maybe this is also because we are so deeply connected to our electronic devices today. That's a good idea. So, were the Dodliston messages real? Was Ken Webster a victim or a hoaxer? Or did things happen as they said, with messages somehow appearing throughout time and space? Was it demons, ghosts, or a poltergeist playing frustrating pranks? Or is there a different explanation we haven't yet explored? Let us know what your thoughts are. We would love to read them in the comments below. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be Eric.